Daniel chapter 1, and last week we more or less focused just on the first two verses in our introduction, and here we get into uh, some of the meat of Daniel, and uh, beginning our reading at verse 3 to the end, let's hear the Word of God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill with of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. And so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. There the word of God that endures forever. May God bring his blessing to it. 
I think there's a, an incident that I'm sure some of you have heard about in the news this past week that unfolded in Brantford concerning a particular pho- photo- uh, photographer and, and her business and, and how uh, when she was uh, asked uh, to uh, video and uh, photograph uh, a wedding for a homosexual couple, she, she very graciously and, and very politely declined to provide those services. And I'm sure if you haven't read it, uh, you can imagine what has unfolded since then. Uh, the business, I believe, uh, is operated by a Christian woman and she is known to a number of uh, other ARP churches and families. Well, the quote-unquote cancel culture and social shaming has been vitriolic against her. Uh, They are attempting to shut down her business and to shame her as much as possible in the public sphere. Uh, If anything, we should have been praying for her tonight. Hadn't thought of it. Just to realize that there are many who come despite all of the graciousness and and the gentleness and politeness that is exercised by God's people in standing firm in their conscience and regarding matters that rise up against God's people in these days, there is still a a weighty culture that is against us and that work hard against us and against the church to paint us as the aggressors, as the haters, and who desire nothing more than to see such a person crumble under the weight of their pressure. That's a reality. It just makes us aware once again that it is never a simple, easy matter to be a faithful follower of Christ in this world. And I don't mean just in our generation. In any generation. It is never easy to be a faithful follower of Christ. We have a world view that will automatically clash with this world. It is inevitable. We have the promise of Christ. Not in a promise in which you may think. We have the promise of Christ. John 16.33 In this world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. We hear the words of Paul in the book of Acts as he went about his ministry of taking the Gospel to the Gentile nations. We must through what? Many tribulations. Not just a few. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the realities. And by tribulation, we mean that afflicting, oppressive, persecuting pressure and trouble that meets us when we seek to be faithful to our God in our life. While most of us unlike Daniel, will not be placed under the threat of invading forces. 
or have our homes reduced to rubble or be uprooted and carried off like Daniel and his three friends were. We are nonetheless under a threat of an increasing humanistic secularization of society that brings with it a tyranny against the church. Last week, I reminded you, and and I wanted just to address this because it is important to understand, I reminded you how God said that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, that God had raised him up with purpose to bring tribulation against Israel against His people. And and I asked you to consider that concerning even our current Prime Minister. How many of us have thought of Him as God's servant raised up for the purpose of bringing tribulation? Not simply to Canada. Obviously, I I think of what Calvin had said when, when God wants to punish a nation, He gives them Wicked rulers. <laughs> and, and we have seen that. This isn't berating our prime minister or diminishing the authority and respect that we are to have for that office of authority that is over us. But it's understanding that many policies have come in place that are anti-God and that are anti-God's holy ways. And we recognize that. As I was reminded in making that statement, God has raised them up as well to bring tribulation against the church, against His kingdom, a refining of His people under these tribulations, and of teaching and drawing us to that place as the Lord said, in this world, the promise, you will have tribulation. I didn't finish it. I'm waiting for it right now to say, but what's the rest of that promise? But in me, I have overcome the world. You will have peace in me. And you know that that sparks a truth of the purpose of such tribulation and judgment of God and hardship that comes when the world clashes with our Christian worldview. God is refining us. God is bearing upon us these things with the purpose of drawing us to that greater place where we find our peace in Him in the midst of these things. Such it was for these young lads, Daniel, who appears very uh, upfront as the leader of of this group of four young Jewish lads. They were under great stresses of oppression that were purposed to get them to change their world view. You look at it physically. What do do we read of Daniel and his three friends? Physically, they were made eunuchs. (laughs) Have you ever thought that? One of the first things that happened to them when they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar, they were made eunuchs. These young men who would now never know the blessedness of a family. Imagine. Not just physically, socially. 
They have been carried away from their own families, from their home life. They are being made to serve in another land under an ungodly government. Make no mistake, you read Habakkuk and you will know the nature of the heart of the Chaldeans. (laughs) They're not a pleasant people. (laughs) There is nothing kind or friendly to where they were going. And not only physically and socially, spiritually... They lost the refuge of the temple. They lost that worship, that governing law of God, the knowledge of God in the land. They now became strangers in a foreign land. This is hard. And yet, what do we read in verse 8? Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In some ways, Daniel looked upon all of this and realized that in this time in his life, what was the greater threat wasn't so much what Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had done to him and was continuing to do to him. What was the greater threat was he himself compromising holiness to the Lord. Isn't that something? You think about it in your own life. Compromising holiness to the Lord. And he he stood out even from the others who were brought with him. They weren't the only four young Jewish men who had been carried away. There's a whole other group. If you read back in verses 3 and 4, you will see that there were several... Several, there were three groups, the children of Israel, the king's descendants, and the nobles. Bring me their youth. And isn't it interesting that throughout the whole book of Daniel, we only read of four of them. Four of them out of that whole company who stood faithful to the Lord. Perhaps there may have been others and they're just part of this. But, but when you read in Daniel, it's very clear that at least at one point, there was only this group. Which begs us to understand that the others indeed compromised holiness to the Lord. It is a hard thing to deal with the world when it conflicts with you. That holiness to the Lord, purposing in your heart not to be defiled, remembering that great call from the Old and the New Testament, the call of God that is set upon the life of the redeemed. God says to you, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If you grasp that, that's why we sang Psalm 99. It's the true hymn on the holiness of God. The Lord our God is holy. Holy, holy. It's spoken three times in that hymn, just as the song of the angels in Isaiah and Revelation is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And dear people of God, you are commanded to be holy because He is holy. Have you purposed in your heart 
not to be defiled. And this is harder than you think because the the temptation to compromise comes when the world brings its tribulating pressure and persecution upon you. And it's in those times that you must be more concerned about your own heart before the Lord. And you need to, first of all, guard against the humanistic, secular schemes that are around us. I want you to notice very quickly what these four lads did not do. They did not refuse to work for the king. They did not refuse the teaching that the king demanded that be brought to them. They did not refuse even all of Babylonian food. And I believe when you take that into consideration, it's part of this purposed heart. As far as possible, what they were looking to be were godly young men in a system that was clearly anti-God. That was part of their purpose. But you note here in verse 8, the focus of Daniel was in his own heart, on his own heart. He purposed in his heart that, that... Not that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't defile him. He had already done that in making them eunuchs. No, he purposed in his heart that that he wouldn't defile himself. Isn't that strong? Eye-opening. That he was concerned about what he might contribute to his own defilement. Not what Babylon might do, but more what he himself would do. And understanding, understanding with that, that that Satan and his schemes are always coming to meet us, to get us to compromise our faith. To get us to, to give up on God's way and to find that easier, broader way that makes our walk in this world a little simpler, a little easier. There is no doubt about Nebuchadnezzar's plan and determination. He wanted to take all of these young minds that he had captured from Israel, from Judah and Jerusalem. He wanted to take these young men and get them to live and to think as though they were citizens of Babylon so that they could serve him and serve him in his palace. My friends, that's no different than what the world is doing today. Even what our society and culture is doing. Even with cancel culture and media shaming. What they are striving to do is to get you to live and think like citizens of this earth. Oh, you must purpose in your heart not to defile yourself. Notice the schemes. Verse 3. Separation. Let's take these young minds away from those influences that would interfere with our influences. I think you know where this leads. Get them while they're young. Separate them from those godly influences that would train their mind in a direction that is opposite from this world's. Get them in a place where they would not readily hear their language, their stories, 
or things about their God. Let's make it easy for them to forget who they were. (laughs) Separate them. Let's indoctrinate them. Verse 4, they were, they were taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans for three years. And, and it may have been, in some aspects, a very good education. They may have learned things about the world and, and other cultures that are not necessarily wrong in themselves. And they could have grown in wisdom and understanding in those ways, no doubt. But let's not be deceived that such an education has not got the mere academics as its purpose. It never does. The purpose was to retrain their minds so that Babylonian history and Babylonian religion would replace their history and their religion. The goal was to replace their worldview, which for Daniel and his three friends revolved around God and His Word and the temple and Christ with a new worldview that revolved around Babylon. That's what they're doing. I I brought this this evening because I I think when you understand even those first two uh, aspects, those first two schemes of humanistic, secular society, separation, indoctrination, I, I think it is a warning for us as Christians concerning even the education of our young children. I honestly, and I know circumstances can be such that there is no other way, but I honestly believe that Christians today have got to seriously consider the danger of sending their children to public school systems. Because they have an agenda. Don't be blind to that. It's not academics. It's an indoctrination into a different worldview. I like what Cornelius Van Til said so long ago about Christian education. He said, consider this with the agenda of the secular humanistic world that we live in. That non-Christians believe that the universe has created God. And they have a finite God. Christians believe God created the universe. And the universe is finite. Non-Christians are therefore not concerned with bringing the child face to face with God. They want to bring the child face to face with the universe. Non-Christian education is godless education. And what is of most importance to us as Christians in education, that which is absolutely indispensable to us, is left out entirely. Do we grasp that? Godless education ignores or denies that man was created responsible to God. This implies that sin is not a transgression of God's law. Hence, Christ did not need to die in our place. Godless, non-theistic education is therefore also non- or anti-Christian education. 
godless, non-Christian education naturally becomes humanistic, man-centered. If man does not need to live for God, then he can live for himself. If then we want a God-centered and truly Christian education, we will have to break away completely from the education philosophy that surrounds us. When you read Daniel, nothing's new, is it? (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun. Separation, indoctrination, reconditioning. Verse 5. The king brings them his daily portions. Young men, I know this has been a hard time for you. I know your life has been uprooted, but but I want you to eat what I eat. I want you to share in what I have. And it's, it's all part of this reconditioning and seduction into the Babylonian lifestyle of pleasure and high living the good life. And you want to assimilate a people without a fight, then feed them well and provide for all their needs. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. <laughs> How do you control 120 nations that you have conquered. You assimilate them. Move them away from thinking that it is in God that we live and move and have our being and replace it with a dependence on the King for all that you need in life. Boy, he was a skilled man, wasn't he? And and with that, with that, with that separation, indoctrination, and reconditioning, it, it, it comes, as you see in verse 7, to integration. You look at verse 7, and what does the chief of the eunuchs do to these four young men? He, he changes their names. Now you might think, well, what, what's the big deal there? You might think, like Shakespeare said, A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. But again, this is all part of Nebuchadnezzar's purpose. This name change had purpose. Let's remove God from their lips. You know, every time they said one another's name, and this is something that was very prevalent in the Old Testament when you read a lot of these biblical names. Do you know what is indicative of many of these names is that the name of God in one form or another is included in their name. Daniel, E-L, L, God. Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. And you, you go through them all. Daniel, Hananiah, The Lord is gracious. What a thing to be saying to one another in captivity. Hananiah, Hananiah, your name just reminded us our Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? Is there any other like our God? Azariah, the Lord is my helper. And, and, and let's give them different names. Let's replace them with the names of the Babylonian gods of Marduk and Bel and Nebel. Belshazzar, 
He's the Lord of the treasure. Where are all the treasures of Israel now? They're sitting in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. The Lord is treasure. Shadrach, you're a royal scribe of a different God. Meshach, you're a guest or you're a friend of the king. Abednego, you're a servant of Nebo. And you see the purpose behind here is forget who your God is as both judge and who is gracious. Forget the uniqueness of your God and that He alone helps you. Look now to the gods who have conquered you, who now have your treasures, who have made you His royal guests, whom you now serve. You see, this was all purposed, again, to retrain their minds because, my dear friends, The world knows that the way we think about God and ourselves and this world impact, not just our worldview. I mean, it it flows from that. It impacts how we live and think. And how this applies to us when you stop and think about it. Dear Christians, you bear the name of God. (laughs) Do you understand that? I think it's one of the great challenges we have in understanding how our baptism, which for many of you here, I know your baptism happened so long ago when you were an infant, you don't even remember it being done to you. And yet, do you understand how your baptism is still for you today a means of grace? When you live in this world, when you walk understanding that you in baptism bear the name of your God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you walk around in this world and you think on your baptism, God is saying, do you not know? My name is on you. You are not of this world. You are of My kingdom. I have purchased you. With the blood of my Son, you are mine. I am yours. Do you know how many times when you hear the commandments of God, do you understand, dear people, how many times you hear this phrase, it's not just the Lord God. You hear this phrase, the Lord your God. (laughs) The Lord your God. That it is an amazing grace when when we hear that word, uh, uh, Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Do you understand the magnificent grace of God that has not only made you His people, but in in doing so, God is saying to you, I am now your God. (laughs) My grace has shone upon you. My name is upon you so that you will know I'm yours. As much as you are mine. And we walk in this world with the knowledge of God's name. And there our baptism 
whenever it occurred in your life. It is a means of grace. It draws you to the name that is set upon you. It draws you to the grace that you have received from God, which has transformed you from a lowly and wretched sinner into a child of the living God and has taken you, as we heard from the call, it has taken you out of this land of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's a means of grace, dear friends. Oh, we forget it, don't we? Our baptism has united to us to the One who has said, I'm your shepherd. I'm the One who keeps you. I will preserve you. Do not fear. And with all of this conditioning, all this scheming, Daniel purposed in his heart that he should not defile himself. That first and foremost, that purpose of his heart was drawing him to know who he was as a child of God. We read in Hebrews 11 the inference to Daniel and his three friends how through faith in God they didn't look to themselves for the strength that they needed to endure these things. They trusted in God through faith. Kingdoms were subdued, righteousness worked, and promises were obtained. Lions' mouths were stopped, and the violence of fire was quenched. They lived by faith in their God. They did not stop forgetting who they were. And in that faith is always this understanding that they were resting in and trusting in the One who was greater than Himself. He purposed that He would not defile Himself. He purposed in His heart. But He didn't look to Himself for that help that He needed. He looked to Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ always brings this hope and this assurance of who we are as God's holy people. It, it, it made him aware that even as the delicacies and whatnot of the king's table were being offered, Daniel's first thought is, I am God's. I am holy. I am holy. And he purposed not to eat of the delicacies or the wine. Why? Was there something wrong with the food? (laughs) Was there something intrinsically bad about the food that was being offered? I don't think so. Was it because those, those particular foods were offered to foreign idols? Well, I don't think that was the case because it was not it was a custom to offer all their food to their gods and Daniel was willing to eat the vegetables. What was it? It's because in seeing these things, he remembered the way of holiness that God had laid out for His people, Israel in particular, contra and distinction to the whole of the other nations, that these are foods that you are not to eat. Because you are holy to me. 
I want you to show and demonstrate your holiness in these ways. He was pursuing that holiness that God had purposed to show His people set apart from the world. He was being, as Peter would write in 1 Peter 13, verse 13, he was being sober-minded He was girding up the loins of his mind, not conforming himself to his own lusts. That's how it's said there. I am not going to let my belly be the reason that I defile myself. And in pursuing this holiness... He was guarding what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. He was guarding the hope that he had in the grace of Jesus Christ. He is holy. He knew he was not as much as Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make these young men citizens of Babylon. He understood being holy that he had a higher citizenship. Even back then, they understood, as as the Hebrew writer says, even of Abraham, they understood that there was a greater city than whatever this earth could afford that they were seeking. Daniel did not forget he was yet a captive in Babylon, a stranger in this world, and with that a citizen of a greater kingdom. This was not his true home. Jerusalem was. His heart was set on the city of God. And it guarded him. But above all, in in purposing in his heart that he would not defile himself, part of that being holy is to know that even in those circumstances, the love of God His Father was still upon Him. And I believe very much Daniel and his friends understood the hand of a loving Father was at work here. Not just from the miracle that unfolded with them showing a far greater uh, uh, healthiness, if you will, or desirable physique, if being fat is desirable. It was in their culture. Some of us would fit well in that culture, I'm sure we're thinking. Now, we read even further on in Daniel 6 that from the very beginning of his captivity, what was his, what was his purpose? Heart doing. Praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. Seeking his God. Praying, O oh God, that your love shine upon us and meet us here in this ungodly city. If your name cannot be great among the nations, let it be great among us. Let your righteousness shine. Think about what John wrote about in our pursuit of holiness, resting in the knowledge of the love of God our Father that is ever upon us. Think about what John wrote in 1 John 3. You know that verse very well, I'm sure. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called what? The children of God. What's the next line? 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know him. Daniel understood that, didn't he? God, this king, this land that we are in, this captivity that we have been brought into, they don't know you. And because they don't know you, they don't know who we are. (laughs) They don't know that your love is upon us. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The love of God inspires the security and assurance of this great hope that is ours. And we rest in it. We know what our God is doing for us and in us. We know what the end of our salvation is going to be, that when we see our Savior, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Now again, what's the very next line? Everyone who has this hope in Christ does what? Purifies himself just as Christ is pure. You see, this pursuit of holiness, this purposed heart not to be defiled, this obedience to that call, be holy for I the Lord your God am holy, is first and foremost resting in the knowledge of the love of the Father that is ever at work in our lives, transforming us into the glory of who Christ is. It's what motivates and stirs in us. And we dare not to think that the Old Testament saints didn't have a shadow of these same promises set before them. Daniel knew the promise of the Messiah. He knew the promise of the Christ who would come. He knew the songs about the King of glory. He knew the Lord his God. He knew the manner of the Father's love, mercy, and faithfulness. And so he purposed to be holy and undefiled. And it began right away as they were sitting down to eat. God, help me to be holy. And I challenge you, dear Christians, are you determined not to be defiled? And in that determination, are you assured of God's love, of your citizenship and adoption through Christ? And do these things fuel your heart in pursuit of that holiness? Look at your worldview. Look at how you are living. Look at where your faith is. Be renewed in your heart to these things. Let us pray.